Amen. Thank you, Josh, Samantha, and thank you, church, for allowing me and my family to take some time this week and vacate. It was, uh, as people have asked me, I respond, it was generally a good time. It was generally a good time. No, we had a wonderful time with family. We did a family reunion, about 100 people, uh, about 48 hours or so, maybe a little less than 48 hours. Can you imagine spending 48 hours with 100 of your family members? Yeah, yeah, that's what it was. I was thinking about our trips and trips past. I recall as a kid, we would make the trip. Usually we would be already in Prattville, Alabama, and we would make the trip from Prattville down to, uh, back then it was a, a state park in Georgia, just across the Alabama-Georgia line. And on the way there, there was a rest stop. There was a rest stop. And it was a routine. It was, it was a tradition. And when we stopped doing it, it almost hurt a little bit. You think, like, why would you be sad that you couldn't go to a rest stop, Matt? Uh, but the reality is I just have fond memories of, a, you know, sitting at that rest stop with concrete tables and concrete benches and concrete, you know, patio coverings and, and terrible bathrooms. I just remember those, those, those things, those times that we had with my cousins. Um, and that rest stop was a wonderful way for us to break up the trip and just enjoy some lunch and enjoy the company of one another. Uh, thankfully, in this long trek through the book of Jeremiah, we have gotten to a good rest stop, okay? You know, it's been relentless. The judgment of God upon the people of God throughout these chapters with just very little hints of, very little hints of what he would do ultimately in the long run. We see right here, beginning in chapter 29, 30, 31, 32, 33, all these chapters are devoted to a remembering of what God was ultimately going to do in restoring his people after their captivity. It's a reminder that there was a new covenant that was coming. It's a reminder that all these things that they, they had were going to be returned and they were going to be once again sanctified for the purposes of God. And not only that, there would be a remnant of people that would be sanctified for the purposes of God. And so our series title is A Righteous Remnant, A Righteous Remnant. Let's go ahead and jump in the text, Jeremiah 30. I'm going to break it up this week. Uh, last week I read the entire chapter, and uh, I, think it was, I think it was tough for us to stick with it. And so I'm going to read as we go today, but I want to begin by reading Jeremiah 30, verses 1 through 3. And have this in mind that this section, these few verses, really introduce the next few chapters. So they're going to shape what comes these next few weeks. Hear the word of the Lord, Jeremiah 30, verses 1 through 3. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, write in a book all the words that I have spoken to you. For behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people, Israel and Judah, 
says the Lord. And I will bring them back to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall take possession of it. Let's pray once more. Father, we ask for your grace to understand your word, to apply your word well, that we may see Jesus and all that he accomplished in his work at the cross. Be glorified, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now, it is unfortunate that we get to the good news, and I title my sermon, Incurable Pain. That's the title today, Incurable Pain. It's like, oh, man, why? I don't intend to make the sermon sound so gloomy with that title, but uh, if you know me, you, you know that I am a glass-half-empty kind of guy anyway. So uh, it fits for me, but this title purposefully points us to the first step of healing and restoration that characterize the next few chapters. These verses we just read, they serve as the introduction for that. They set the overall tone of restoration and promises of a hope and a future. Jeremiah just spent several chapters standing up against false teaching and offering the true word of God. So let's be reminded now, based on these words, that these words are not simply the hopes and wishes of some prophet. They had heard that before. Oh, it's not going to last long, this captivity. Oh, that stuff they took out of the temple to Babylon. They're going to bring it back quick. No problem. It won't be long. And Jeremiah says, these guys are lying to you. And he gives them these words, which are not just words of some prophet, but they are the very words of the Almighty God. You notice in these first three verses, no less than four times the Lord God receives credit for these words. This is so important. So as we hear the message today, be reminded that this is from the Lord. The theme this morning, God's saving work prevails in the face of immeasurable pain, the immeasurable pain of sin. I don't have my TV on today, so yes, there it is. God's saving work prevails in the face of the immeasurable pain of sin. You know, a lot of people live their lives giving little thought to the effects of sin against a holy God. These verses remind us that sin is severe, that sin is absolutely offensive to God. He shows us in these verses what he's willing to do to his own people to make them what he wants them to be. Don't forget this. This applies to us as well. When you're experiencing the rebuke from the Lord or the rebuke from the word or the discipline of the Lord, know that God's purpose ultimately is to make you what he intended you to be, which is like Jesus Christ. So no matter what pain you may be going through, and and honestly, in in our society, I've, I've had some conversations about this recently. It's almost like we do so well Like, we're so blessed with possessions and freedoms and all these things that we enjoy, all these things that we take for granted. And so it's almost like we have to come up with stuff to think like God is disciplining me. 
It's hard to look in the lives of Christians in our society. It's hard to look in the lives of Christians and say, yeah, God's discipline is clearly upon them. And so part of me hesitates. Like, I don't know what, I don't know what the, the judgment of God would look like for Cedarview Baptist Church. I don't know. All I know is that if God does it, it would be good for us. If he refines us, which hopefully, according to the word, I think we can trust that he is doing. But if that pain becomes severe, will we be able to trust that his saving work will prevail in the long run? I want to give you four ways that his saving work prevails from this text today. Four ways God's saving work prevails in the face of the immeasurable pain of sin. First off, first way, God's promise prevails in our affliction. God's promise prevails in our affliction. Verse 4, 4 through uh, 11. These are the words of the, that the Lord spoke concerning Israel and Judah. That's important, okay, Israel and Judah. Thus says the Lord, we have heard a cry of panic, of terror, and no peace. Ask now and see, can a man bear a child? Why then do we see every man with his hands on his stomach like a woman in labor? Why has every face turned pale? Alas, that day is so great, there is none like it. It is a time of distress for Jacob, yet he shall be saved out of it. And it shall come to pass in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will break the yoke from off your neck, and I will burst your bonds. And foreigners shall no more make a servant of him, that is Jacob. But they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. Then fear not, O Jacob, my servant, declares the Lord, nor be dismayed, O Israel, for behold, I will save you from far away and your offspring from the land of their captivity. Jacob shall return and have quiet and ease, and none shall make him afraid. For I am with you to save you, declares the Lord. I will make a full end of the nations among whom I scattered you, but of you I will not make a full end. I will discipline you in just measure. I will by no means leave you unpunished. God's promise prevails in our affliction. And so notice first that Israel and Judah are included both in this prophecy. Israel endured the purifying judgment of the Lord. Now Judah, the southern kingdom, is in that refining fire. Yet the promise of God is for all of Israel. It's for all true believers. God's taken the different tribes through the sanctifying work of his hand, bringing all those who truly trust in his name to the fulfillment of the promise. And so knowing God's promise gives abiding hope, but it doesn't make the affliction easier. They're suffering. They're suffering. But amid this suffering, there is his promise. He shall be saved out of it. I am with you to save you, verse 11. There's a couple of ways we see this promise worked out. I think verses 4 through 7 show us that this promise is to sanctify. 
This promise is to sanctify. That word simply means made holy. And this is wonderful. The promise to sanctify. We will ultimately be conformed, people of God, to the image of Christ. Not only justified, but will be sanctified and glorified, verse 8, in that day. We'll be the people that God made us to be. But wait a minute. That sounds wonderful. Yeah, God, make me like Jesus. Are you sure? That may come with a bit of pain. That may come with a, a bit of discomfort here. Becoming like Christ means stripping away what's left of that old sinful flesh. Do you really want that? Being made holy in every practical way means that the people of God will undergo these sanctifying fires of affliction. As we prayed for Miss Sue earlier, we were talking this morning about physical therapy and just the, the pain that comes along with it. And there are some folks that, you know, they get something replaced and it's like, they can't understand that there's a lot of pain that has to be endured in order for you to actually get better. So if you lose sight of what the outcome will be, then all you see is physical therapy that just plain hurts. It just hurts. I've got news for you today. Sanctification often hurts. Right here in this text, you've got cries of panic, terror, men doubled over with intense pain like childbirth. Some moms are like, yeah, I wish my husband could experience that pain. Faces pale under the discipline of the Lord. But let me ask you, when sanctification hurts, do you receive it or do you act like God is doing something wrong? They even, they even it, it hints that they're like, why are we having to endure this pain? And his words are, you brought this upon yourself. But there is a promise to sanctify here. And thankfully, God does fulfill that work of sanctification. It's also a promise to save, verses 8 through 11. Verse 8 immediately refers to the yoke. You know, the past couple of chapters, 27, 28, there were the yokes that were given to the nation, the yokes that were given to the people of God, and they were treated no differently, honestly. So right here, this immediately refers to that yoke about which Jeremiah prophesied, that it will be broken, it will be removed, your bonds will be loosed. Yet verse 8 also reaches into the future, even beyond our days. He says, I will burst your bonds and foreigners shall no more make a servant of him. I want to remind you about prophecy uh, an illustration that was helpful for me, anytime we look at prophecy, biblical prophecy, it's like approaching a mountain range. You've heard me say this before. You look off at the mountain range in the distance, everything looks real close together. But then you get to that first mountain, and it's like, hey, that next mountain is still dozens of miles away. That's kind of how prophecy works in Scripture sometimes. 
there is an immediate fulfillment. And once you get there, there's still things that are yet to be fulfilled in the future. That's what he is talking about right here. Yeah, they're going to go back to their land. They're going to be restored. But the promise of no more foreign rule, that's still future. It's still future for us. The promise ensures that God's people won't be subject to serving a foreign king or foreign power ever again. In fact, they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king. Verse 9. Does that mean that David will be resurrected? No. No. This is an explicit statement of the Messiah, the ideal king. Huey notes here that the New Testament writers were careful to link Jesus to the family of David as evidence that he was the fulfillment of the coming Messiah anticipated in the Old Testament. You go to Matthew, you go to Luke, you see the lineages, specific, generation upon generation, tying Jesus to King David, the greatest human king they ever had. The Bible says, hey, there's a better king coming. That Messiah is coming. He's going to rule perfectly, reign perfectly over God's people, and it will not change. It will last forever. There is this promise to save. We'll talk about the king more later. As I was thinking about these verses, he says these couple of things here. Verse 11, he says, I will make a full end of all the nations. But of you, I will not make a full end. It makes me think like, you know how you finish drinking like a cup of water. And you get to the end of the cup of water and you think it's all gone. And you set it down. And then maybe for whatever reason, you pick it up later and there's a few more drops that fall out. It's like you can never get to that last little bit. Well, God says, among the nations, I'm going to completely wipe out every last drop. But of the people of God, there is that remnant that's going to stick around. There is that remnant of people that I'm going to make a great nation once again, multiplied people. And we understand from the scriptures that this nation is a new nation under the banner of Jesus Christ. Peter tells us about this. A holy nation, a royal priesthood. And these are people from all the nations to be a people for God's own possession. There's this promise to save. It's a promise to sanctify. It's a promise to save. Ultimately, in the end, this king will reign perfectly. God's promise prevails in our affliction. Number two, second way. Number two, God's grace prevails in our desperation. God's grace prevails in our desperation. Verses 12 through 17. For thus says the Lord, your hurt is incurable. Your wound is grievous. There is none to uphold your cause, no medicine for your wound, no healing for you. All your lovers have forgotten you. They care nothing for you. For I have dealt you the blow of an enemy, the punishment of a merciless foe, because your guilt is great, because your sins are flagrant. Why do you cry out over your hurt? Your pain is incurable. 
because your guilt is great, because your sins are flagrant. I have done these things to you. (laughs) Mark that line right there. Mark that line right there and go home and wrestle in your prayer closet over that line, all right? I have done this to you. Therefore, all who devour you shall be devoured, and all your foes, every one of them, shall go into captivity. Those who plunder you, or excuse me, you shall be plundered. Those who, you, who prey on you, I will make a prey, for I will restore health to you, and your wounds I will heal, declares the Lord, because they have called you an outcast. It is Zion for whom no one cares. God's grace prevails in our desperation. There's a couple of things that grace does here. First off, grace reveals our desperation. Verses 12 through 15. You see these words, your your hurt is incurable, your wound is grievous, your guilt is great, sin's flagrant. These, These words, they describe... God's grace in showing us our desperate condition. Grace reveals our desperation. Huey writes here, sin so permeated the nation that its condition was terminal. The wound of sin is incurable. I know somebody didn't hear me. The wound of sin is incurable. This is what God says. The hurt is unending. The pain and the suffering has no limit. And this is our desperate situation. But God graciously shows it to us. Can you imagine, apart from God's grace in your life, wandering around in the world, as Paul says, groping around in the darkness... And you have no idea that your sin against a holy God has earned you hell. But God is gracious to show us this. You know, if the doctor knows we have terminal cancer, we would expect him to tell us, well, in this case, a holy and righteous God who's watched us rebel, profane his name, reject his covenant, doubt his promises, turn to idols, seek out nightly lovers, This God gets our attention through his word and from his storehouses of grace. He says, you need to know that there is no way out of this. And instead of leaving them in their ignorance, groping around for all the things that will never satisfy, God shows them what their sin does. By inflicting his judgment on them with Babylon. The wound they experience is in direct response to their sin. Verses 14 and 15 say it. I have dealt you the blow of an enemy. Because your guilt is great. Because your sins are flagrant. He says it twice. Folks, this is what sin does. It sets us against God. It turns the floodgates of God's wrath on us. It earns us punishment. 
Yet by revealing this to us, God is showing us his grace. Grace reveals our desperation. The question for you, have you have you personally come to understand your desperate condition before a holy God? Has the Holy Spirit shown you your sins and guilt? Do you acknowledge that, that your pain is incurable? Is your, is your wound unhealable? Do you know that? This is the starting point for anyone who would know Jesus Christ or to hope to be conformed to his likeness. No, we, we don't want to acknowledge that. People in our world, especially, I would say, in our society, we want to think that we are some kind of exception. Well, God knows the intentions of my heart. You don't realize how evil your intentions are. So stop thinking that God is going to judge you based on some good intention that you may have had once upon a time, as far as you can tell. He will judge you for your sin. Every last one apart from the grace found in Jesus. Grace reveals our desperation. So do you, do you know this? Do you know that your wound is incurable? Your pain is incurable? If you do, that's a great starting Because that grace, it reveals our desperation, but that grace also rescues amid our desperation. Grace rescues amid desperation. Verses 16 and 17. God graciously shows us the desperation, but he rescues us from this condition. Aaron and I were watching tennis yesterday. Y'all know I'm a sports lover. If curling is on, I'm going to watch it. Some of y'all don't know what curling is. If there's a sport on, I'm going to watch it. I love to watch sports. We were watching Wimbledon tennis yesterday, watching the Royals pass out trophies and whatnot. And in the crowd at Wimbledon sat Tom Cruise. And I got to searching, and I found that uh, it may be in production right now, I guess, but Mission Impossible 7. Mission Impossible 7 is in the works, all right? So that makes seven impossible missions that were accomplished. Doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? I'm starting to think that they were just difficult missions. But Mission Difficult just doesn't quite have the same ring to it. Does it? God says to this people, your condition is way past difficult. Your condition is way past irreparable. There is no cure for this. Your problem is unsalvageable. Your wound is too deep. Your sin is too offensive. Your situation truly is impossible, but I am the God of the impossible. Oh my goodness. Raul, help me out. 
I am the God of the impossible. I will bring the cure, capital C, cure for your incurable wound. I will bring the balm, the capital B, balm for your incurable pain. I have the power, capital P, power to rescue you from sin. I can change your ways by giving you a new heart. Believer, don't take the gospel for granted today. Oh, of course there's healing in Jesus. Of course there's forgiveness in Jesus. That can't be our attitude today. Believer, what would it take you to see the good news of the gospel afresh? That you were destined for hell and God by his grace reached out and grabbed you. It's God's grace in Christ. And then the gospel of Jesus Christ, he says, I will restore health to you. Your wounds I will heal. You know, sin reaches too far for us to measure. But God's grace reaches farther. And I want to show you another motivation here. Another motivation for God's grace. Certainly true that he looks upon our desperate situation and says, I'm going to save this desperate people. But you know what? Above that, (laughs) above your condition, above God's compassion for you in that condition, above our helplessness, God is supremely motivated by the glory of his own name. As Huey argues here, God wouldn't allow the nations to take credit for destroying Israel. Think about that for a second. If the nations, if if Babylon had come come and taken over Uh, Judah, if they had been brought to their full end, you know what would happen? The nations would say, hey, look at them. Their God did not come through for them. He's not truly God. So he says here, you want to know why I'm rescuing you from your desperate situation? It's because the watching world now calls you an outcast. They think I don't care for you. You look at that last verse right there. Verse 17, because they have called you an outcast, it is Zion, another name for the people of God, for whom no one cares. So God says, I'm not going to let them say that about me. So above all, God preserves his glorious and majestic name by upholding his covenant with his people. And so the nations look upon the people of God, they look upon the church, and they think absolutely nothing of it. But in God's plan, the people redeemed and glorified will be set on display as a trophy of God's grace. And all of creation will know that the one true God did this. Oh, man. I'm so glad you're here, Raul. I needed you today. Oh, my goodness. 
God's grace prevails in our desperation. Third way, God's Savior prevails in our restoration. God's Savior prevails in our restoration. We're, We're rounding third, okay? We're we're headed home here. God's Savior prevails in our restoration. Verses 18 through 22. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will restore the fortunes of the tents of Jacob and have compassion on his dwellings. The city shall be rebuilt on its mound and the palace shall stand where it used to be. Out of them shall come songs of thanksgiving and the voices of those who celebrate. I will multiply them and they shall not be few. I will make them honored and they shall not be small. Their children shall be as they were of old, and their congregation shall be established before me, and I will punish all who oppress them. Their prince shall be one of themselves. Their ruler shall come out from their midst. I will make him draw near, and he shall approach me. For who would dare of himself to approach me, declares the Lord. And you shall be my people, and I will be your God. God's Savior prevails in our restoration. Of all that God promises to restore, nothing is missing. From fortunes to houses to the city, from people to the lips that sing God's praise, to the multiplication of that praise, celebration and thanksgiving will be the song of restoration. The people of God will be great and they will be given a place of honor. All this beautiful picture, the shalom that we talked about last week, Jeremiah 29. But there is one, there is one who stands over them by whom all restoration comes. A prince, if you are following along there. There is a prince. This prince is one of themselves. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The prince is one of themselves. He will come out from their midst. Folks, this is... The Lord Jesus Christ, God in human flesh. God says this prince will draw near to God. And then he asks the question, who would dare of himself to approach me? We need to stop right there. What does the word say about any sinner who would dare approach God? He will be wiped out. No man can look upon God and live So who would dare approach me? Holiday translates this phrase right here, this question. Who would risk his own life to approach me? Do you understand this? Do you see the gospel of Jesus Christ? This one... Who had every right to approach the Father? You know what he did? He became sin for us. 
who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. There is no mere human that is fit to approach God's throne, but our prince, our prince gave his own life so that we could approach the throne of God. Hebrews 5 teaches us that no merely human priest is fit to bring redemption. They have to offer sacrifices for themselves and then on behalf of the people. And at that, they have to do it over and over and over and over again. There is no priest fit to bring redemption, yet our great high priest is fit. We know that there's no merely human king that is fit to rule forever. But this prince is the Davidic king, writes one commentator, through whom all the promises and responsibilities of the covenant will become realities. And Huey adds here, the relationship between God and his people would not be restored on the basis of an old covenant, but on a new covenant. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, which is for next week. This covenant is an eternal covenant. Follow me here, folks. A covenant made with the only blood sufficient to wash our unwashable sin stain. The blood that is only sufficient is the only sufficient blood to heal our unhealable wound. It's the only blood sufficient to cure our incurable pain. God's Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, will do these things. And in fact, he has done these things by giving his life. Fourthly, finally, And we're basically done. God's justice prevails in our vindication. God's justice prevails in our vindication. 23, 24. Behold, the storm of the Lord. Wrath has gone forth. A whirling tempest. It will burst upon the head of the wicked. The fierce anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has executed and accomplished the intentions of his mind. In the latter days, you will understand this. These words are familiar, very similar to verses from chapter 23, and the message remains the same. God will rain down wrath on the wicked and unbelieving. And if he were to relent from his anger against the wicked, he would surrender his throne and would not be God. It says right here, his mind won't change. All the intentions that he has will be accomplished. But what does this say of the gospel? The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is not the message that somehow God just sort of says, okay, you know, your sins are not that bad. No. The gospel of Jesus Christ is that your sin is punished in the Lord Jesus himself. So how is it? How is it that God can be just and at the same time let sinners go free? It's by putting the perfect son on the cross. 
And in the gospel, God's justice, God's love, God's mercy and grace are on full display. The promise of healing is not yours if you have not come to understand just how deeply sin affects you. You realize that there is no cure known to man outside of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel in which God sent Jesus to live, to die, to rise again. If your desire is to have hope, if your desire is to have a future, if your desire is to know God, you must know him through Jesus Christ and his finished work at Calvary. The scripture says, turn from your sin, believe on Jesus today, and you will be saved. And you will know the cure to the uncurable problem of sin that rests upon you right now. God, be glorified in our response. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice in your word. We rejoice in these these beautiful pictures of your grace. Father, we do not want to take lightly any measure of your judgment against sin. Father, in our own hearts, when we have given place to sin, when we have fed our sin, when we have nurtured our flesh, Father, I pray that the Holy Spirit would correct us. Pray even now as we confess and repent of sin that we would adopt the view of sin that you have. This is the only way that forgiveness can be real. Father, we confess that Jesus is the only Savior. Father, save to the uttermost. Save, Father, according to your good purposes to bring glory to your own name. We pray in Jesus' name.